0: What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global. And it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's Thought Leadership events and publications at DLApiper.com.
1: I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Mateo Jaramillo, the co-founder and CEO of Form Energy. Form is working on a new kind of long-duration battery that could change the power sector. In the early 2000s, Matteo deployed some of the first battery systems in New York for demand response, seeing the grid services' potential well before anyone else did. He went on to start the storage unit at Tesla, launching and building the Powerwall business. Today, Matteo is working on a new battery that could provide storage for days, weeks, or even months unlocking baseload renewables. In this interview, I spoke with Mateo about the technology, the team, and the bumps and bruises that come from scaling in an early market. On a personal note, Mateo is the kind of person who, when he looks at you, he really sees you. This conversation was recorded live at the Prelude Low Carbon Forum in 2019. Mateo, starting with just kind of a light, easy answer, tell me about your greatest failure. (laughs) <laughs> I'm actually kidding. We're going to get to that later. <laughs> Just
2: jump right into it, Emily. <laughs> uh,
1: no, actually going to start with, start with Form Energy. So Form Energy seeks to enable the entire world to be powered by wind and solar by replacing all baseload power, including gas, with long-duration seasonal storage. But in your words, what is Form Energy?
2: Yeah, yeah we're not very ambitious. Um, so we're taking, <laughs> we're taking a very small bite out of the battery pie. Uh, Yeah, the the goal of the company is to really develop the kind of energy storage you need uh, to enable the world to run entirely off of wind, water, or solar. Uh, In other words, to have a fully renewable uh, power generation infrastructure. And uh, batteries, of course, have been around for a very long time. There's lots of different kinds of batteries. uh, But as it turns out, the kind of battery that we need to enable that 100% renewable future um, is something that we just don't have right now. And in fact, it's nothing that looks like anything that's even close to things that have been developed to date. And so FORM started out uh, really with the, uh, the thought experiment of what would it take um, to solve that equation, renewables plus a kind of battery is cheaper than thermal generation, and worked backward from there. And, and what fell out of thinking about it in that way uh, was, was something very specific uh, around just how different that kind of battery is. Um, for example, Uh, you no longer need to chase cycles as a key figure of merit. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries, of course, have been uh, driven to be a lot better than they ever were, uh, and they now can attain thousands of cycles over the course of life, full charge, full discharge. Uh, But it turns out that in the case of solving the long-duration intermittency issues associated with, let's say, wind or solar, uh, cycles is really not the problem. And uh, so we we really rethought what was really necessary to succeed. uh, and, And arrived at some pretty surprising conclusions.
1: Taking this back to where it all began, you grew up in Salinas, California, which is an agricultural area about an hour south of San Jose. Hmm. You're the son of a Mexican-American civil rights lawyer who represented farm workers and Hmm. a white middle school English teacher. Your dad was a priest uh, no, not, not a not, priest. Not Was going to be a priest, but he's Catholic. <laughs> he your mom yeah. uh, is atheist. You grew up Catholic and are still practicing. How did your parents' yes. careers and their beliefs shape you growing up?
2: Well, in in every way you could possibly imagine. I, uh, in many ways, I uh, won the parent lottery. Uh, I think Matt. I, I listened to Matt's uh, Matt Rogers' What It Takes" podcast and. Um, I certainly appreciate the role that he ascribes to luck in, the, in his success, and I think the same is definitely true for me. Um, uh, but I really think about it in terms of uh, family. And you know, you don't get to choose your family, and I, I've been uh, blessed, really, to, to be a part of a family that is so great. and obviously that starts with my parents. And uh, yeah, my parents are really hard, are very hard-working people, uh, very humble, very modest. Um, and they are optimists, uh, which is probably the greatest thing that they gave me, uh, in addition to just supporting me. My parents never told me what to do, ever. Uh, the expectations were very high, of course. Um, uh, the standards were very high, uh, but they never, ever told me what to do. Mm-hmm. They just only ever supported me. So um, it was a, I, I couldn't have asked for a, a better set of circumstances growing up. Um, Salinas is a, a uh, pretty interesting place. Uh, going through a lot of transition in general. Um, it's not where you would think uh, think of as as sort of a a place for uh, for a lot of people to kind of come out. I, I went to Harvard undergraduate. Uh, not very many people did that uh, leaving Salinas. Um, I went through the public school system there. It's large. It's chaotic. It's you know California public schools, uh, but there there are some phenomenal uh, pathways through there and um, and and with the support of my parents. Uh, I was really set up to do pretty much whatever I wanted to,
1: speaking of your high school, I know it was eighty percent Latino had about eight hundred students per grade um,
2: well, eight hundred students in the freshman class and by the graduating class they were about four fifty so wow. the dropout rate was pretty wow. high is pretty high. Wow. My house yeah total was about two thousand
1: kids. Wow. I know you took school really seriously and were competitive about your grades amongst your friends, including your friend who is now the managing uh, managing Director at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Dave Danielson. Uh, tell me about your friendship with Dave.
2: Yeah, Dave, Dave is my best friend, <laughs> and and has been since I was fifteen. Since we were fifteen years old, uh, Dave's a Dave's a great guy, and he is my best friend not because he lets me get away with things, but because he has always challenged me, mm-hmm. and I think I've challenged him too uh, in the right way. And we just were very sort of like-minded kids that uh, wanted to think big and compete with each other and be ambitious and. Um, but also have a fun time and uh, and I think that still holds true for what we're doing.
1: Hmm. Anything you it's want to great. share about a particular road trip that you took with Dave Danielson?
2: <laughs> Dave and I have taken a couple road trips. <laughs> uh, no, probably not
1: <laughs> Fair. <laughs> yeah. Both of your parents went to Stanford. Your dad is one of six kids, four of whom went to Stanford. So your youthful act of a rebellion was to go to Harvard. Uh, what did you study and what did you learn?
2: Yeah, I- indeed. Um, I, and also, uh, I mean, a comment about my dad's side of the family, well, my mom's side too. They, you know, they, they, it was a different era, of course. Um, but my dad's generation, his, his, he and his siblings, they were the first ki- kids, people in the family to go to college. And, uh, and, and the fact that they all were successful, not just the ones that went to Stanford, but, the, but they all uh, went on to achieve very good things, um, is, is really sort of the standard that I grew up with, and my mom as well. Um, so that, that's what I meant um, earlier. Uh, so uh, yeah, act of rebellion was to not go to Stanford. My brother was there at the time that I was considering colleges, and my cousin was also there at the time. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to chart my own path. Um, I wanted to go do something that didn't feel quite so familiar. Um, even growing up at Salinas, we spent a lot of time going to, you know, the Stanford-Berkeley football game every year, and, um, and so going to Harvard felt different, uh, and going to a place that I didn't know, going to Cambridge, uh, experiencing winter for the first time, really. <laughs> uh, I didn't know anybody at the college, um, and, uh, and, and, and it was a way that I wanted to test myself. I very intentionally wanted to go do that kind of thing and sort of see how I could stack up and see how I could compete. Uh, it appealed to me to, to try and do that. What did you study? I studied economics. I graduated with a degree in economics and, um, and spent a lot of time in environmental economics in particular. Mm-hmm.
1: You graduated from Harvard in 1999, at the peak of the first tech bubble. Mm-hmm. A friend of yours was starting an early AI company in Cambridge that was able to raise more than $50,000, or some $50,000, $50 million, without a business model, which you thought was crazy. How did working with them shape your next steps as far as your career? What did you learn from that experience?
2: They were heady times, uh, as anybody who lived through those times remembers. It was surprising, though, to me, even with as little experience as I had as a 22-year-old kid fresh out of college, just how little diligence was done uh, at the time to to garner a lot of money uh, from investors who probably should have known better. And and, and what that confirmed to me, I mean, it was just kind of chasing the money and there wasn't really a formal business plan associated with it. Or if there was, it was very flimsy. And uh, it reiterated to me the importance of working on something that really mattered, uh, it, I, I sort of jokingly refer to that phase of my life as performance or venture-funded performance art. I mean, it was a—you know—we weren't doing anything. It was—it was a <laughs> was, uh, it, it, yeah, really. It, it was—it was a performance more or less. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that very clearly to me, uh, I took away that that I didn't want to do that kind of thing. I wanted to work on something meaningful. Um, and also, importantly for me. Uh, just as a category, I didn't find software compelling. That's not really what motivates me, um, is working on, on just software. Uh, I realized uh, sort of in the, in the negative that I wanted to work on hardware. I had no idea what that meant, of course, but I, I thought that it, ultimately software was not going to be where I wanted to spend my time. Mm.
1: Where did that thought process lead you?
2: So obviously if you don't want to work on software, you just go to Divinity School, which is what I did.
1: <laughs> obviously, obviously. For, for those uh, who that path is not obvious, yeah. give us a little insight into sure. your thinking and process. Yeah, there, there's
2: a little bit more there, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't, so I, I was at that company for I think a total of three years, uh, but realized sort of two years in that that was not gonna be what I wanted to do longer term. And, and as I mentioned, I, I really did want to uh, work on what I felt was something that was really meaningful to, to me personally and and as you mentioned earlier, I, I grew up a practicing Catholic and um, take my faith very seriously today and I, want, I had some questions that I felt I, I had to answer uh, and and wanted to answer them in a in a thoughtful and systematic uh, and and patient way and so i I applied to him and ended up going to the um, Yale Divinity School, where I studied theology for a couple of years. Um, but the the intention there was not to just study theology. I, I was open to the vocation of the priesthood, of, of getting ordained. Um, and so that was a, a, was a bit of a sidestep, uh, you could say. It, to me, it didn't feel quite so drastic, but um, I think maybe from the outside, it looked like a, a bit of a swerve. But for me, it felt very, mm. very consistent.
1: Mm. You, nor your dad, are a priest that I know of. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so... Why Why not? What did you learn in Divinity School, and why did you decide not to follow what would have been the expected path?
2: Yeah, so th- there are people for whom they can't imagine anything other than being uh, an ordained minister. And very clearly, I realized that was not me. Uh, and very specifically, in, in very specific contexts, one of the great things about the Yale Divinity School is that it does explicitly prepare people for the ministry. And it puts students who go there through what they call the vocational discernment process. And it's a very structured process whereby you understand your fit for the vocation. And, and the term that a lot of people use, or that is used in general, is uh, the calling, really, uh, to that vocation. Um, but, of course, by going through the process, you learn skills that one can very easily apply to any vocational discernment process, not just for the ordination, for example. And, and so the, the wonderful part about that is, relatively early on in the process, I realized that constitutionally, I'm just not very well fit to be a priest. I, I, I tend to, it requires a lot of problem listening as a start, and I'm very impatient when it comes to that. <laughs> <laughs> for better or for worse, I like to problem solve pretty quickly. And, uh, and so that just meant that I, that was not gonna work for me. Um, and good thing because, uh, it, the, the, the priesthood is not a vocation you want to go down and then realize, you know, early on, it's just not going to work. And so I was weeded out of the process is probably the <laughs> right way to say that. Um, yeah.
1: Tell us about your, uh, ethics of the environment class.
2: Yeah, that, uh, that was one of the great classes. I took a lot of great classes. That was, um, one of the more memorable ones. It was a class co-taught between two professors, uh, one at the divinity school uh, a Professor named Margaret Farley, um, who is a nun uh, on on ethics, and then uh, with a professor from the Forestry School, uh, at the Yale Forestry School, which is a great school. and uh, and it, it, it sort of started to recall the work that I had done as an undergraduate around environmental economics and environmental justice, uh, which which formed a large part of uh, what I had done previously. And that was when I had already realized that I was not going to be going uh, down the path of, uh, of ordination. And when I was really in the phase of figuring out what I did want to do and taking those vocational discernment skills that I had learned and applying them to figure out what, what was next for me. Mm. And so that class came at a, a great time and uh, really helped me uh, refine what I was going to end up doing.
1: Mm. What did you end up doing?
2: I ended up joining a battery company.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And again, for those who, for whom that is not the obvious transition, what, especially this was in 2003, 2004, what, what led you to storage, especially then?
2: Well, uh, I started doing my homework. I I realized that I was, uh, again, not going to be a priest and, uh, and that I did want to work broadly speaking in the environment. That, that part was clear to me. And then I just started to be as systematic as I could about what parts I did want to work on. Obviously, that's a very underdetermined space to say, I want to work on environmental issues. Uh, so I did what, uh, what, I, what I could think of to do, which was take advantage of the Harvard network. I, I went, went and looked up the alumni that were in uh, the field of energy that were willing to speak with students uh, or people transitioning in their career. And I called, I don't know, 50 people and just asked them what they did and how they did it and what they were exposed to, what they thought of and just got a bunch of feedback, and also started to do research on my own. Um, uh, Zilka Energy was uh, getting some news at the time, if you really paid attention, and Zilka was a precursor to Horizon, and and sort of the first big uh, financial win in, in the renewable energy industry, and you could start to see what was happening on the cost curves for wind and for solar, and I sort of stitched all that together, and for me it became clear that wind and solar would continue to get a lot cheaper, And that at some point, it might be beneficial to store some of that. And so I really just made a sector bet and said, well, that's what I'm going to go work on. And I made that decision six months prior to graduating with a degree in theology. (laughs) Uh, But that's what I did.
1: So in 2004, you made this conscious, intentional decision to want to at least join the, the storage space. At the time, you were living in Spain. Your wife, Virginia, was finishing her MBA. Yeah. And you found a job posting for a, a role with a company called Gaia Energy, a storage company in New York. So after she graduated, the two of you moved to New York City. You started at Gaia. You were selling uh, thousands of residential storage units uh, to the tune of about you know $50,000 worth of them. This is back in now 2005. Uh, but the economic crisis wiped out the resi storage market to the point where you would sell a system, and that would be the capital that paid for payroll that month. Um, yeah. And these were lead acid batteries at the time.
2: Uh, lead, lead acid batteries and Xantrex solar inverters. Uh, well, they they were battery inverters, but pr- primarily for solar. Yeah. yeah, that that was an interesting period. <laughs>
1: <laughs> any any yeah t- takeaways lessons from your your first real experience in storage, and then how did that lead you to Tesla?
2: Yeah. Um, so we we definitely had residential systems, and we sold thousands of them for you know mil- we sold millions of dollars worth of these things, uh, and and certainly the residential backup market was was a part of that. Uh, the tri-state area around New York has relatively poor reliability, especially when storms come through, and not everybody can install a generator, and so there was a, a decent demand for high-ticket items uh, for for backup power. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I started. Uh, the first demand reduction application of a battery, in, as far as I know in the United States, and that was uh, using those same kinds of batteries in Starbucks, in Zone J in Manhattan to do behind the meter demand reduction. So NICERTA, the state agency in New York, um, energy agency uh, should get more credit in my estimation for um, some of the pioneering uh, programs that they funded around energy storage, and that's precisely what funded those projects that we did uh, in New York. Um, and to me, it proved that, that, yes, the batteries were not what you would want them to be in, or the inverters or the telemetry, um, but all those pieces, it became very clear to me, were, were there to be improved in, in pretty massive ways. And being able to do uh, things like behind-the-meter demand reduction, to me, felt like an inevitability. That was going mm-hmm. to happen. Uh, you just needed the tech to get better. And, uh, and the residential market w- was also there. Um, so there were, there were some phenomenal sort of insights uh, that still stuck with me uh, and still to, do to this day. Uh, but it was a tough startup, um, it, as, you, as you referenced. Uh, on more than one occasion, uh, I, I recall having to drive to somebody's house in Greenwich, Connecticut to sell them a $30,000 battery system. And if I didn't get a check for it, we weren't gonna make payroll. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really was a scrappy, uh, <laughs> gritty startup experience. And it was, it was not pleasant, always. Um, and it was, uh, it was uh, a lot of lessons learned around what it really takes to, to keep that kind of an effort going uh, and the kind of grit that it takes to try and make it even succeed. And we, we ended up not succeeding, uh, but we, we slogged away at it for, for a few years. And you try and sort of take away the best possible learnings that you can and package those into something useful for the next thing.
1: Mm-hmm. So you wanted a really chill work environment after that, something really relaxing and kind of easy, so you joined Tesla. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, First of all, do you care about cars?
2: Uh, Not really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you joined Tesla in 2009. You took over the powertrain business, then started Tesla Energy, their storage business. In the early days of Tesla, I know you worked with Ben Tarbell, who's one of my all-time favorite people in the industry. Uh, You got a million-dollar California Energy Commission grant to make smart batteries compatible with the grid. I know you sold your first battery to SoCal Ed in 2009. And all of this was happening. You were doing the, the, the Tesla Powerwall development pretty quietly. It sounds like there's... There were some murmurs that if Elon had known that you were working on it, that he would have shut it down. So is that true and, and why? And then if there's any particular story that you'd like to share there, please do.
2: Sure. I, I don't know that he would have explicitly shut it down, but why even raise the question? <laughs> uh, we, yeah, we, So when I, I came in contact with Tessa through J.B. Straubel, who was one of the founders and the CTO for a long time. And JB's great, uh, and we had a, a very like-minded conversation uh, around what you do with batteries on the grid uh, before I even talked about the powertrain or cars or anything like that. And so I, I really went there, uh, of course, ultimately found out there was actu- an actual job he wanted me to do, not, not batteries on the grid. But when I started uh, on the very first day, he said, okay, all the other stuff we talked about, go, go get it going and figure out how we're gonna get it get it as part of the company. And so Tesla Energy really was just started from that internal effort. It was an intrapreneurial effort, if you will. And um, and we knew that we needed to secure our own source of funding. This was before the, well before the Model S was launched, of course. Uh, the Roadster was having its own uh, difficulties getting into the market. And so uh, we had to have that secure uh, pot of funds. And uh, so the way that we did that uh, with Ben and Eric Carlson and, and others, uh, we applied for a grant out of the... Solar Initiative, the California Solar Initiative program. And it was to take essentially what was a, a smart battery that Tesla had developed for Daimler uh, for their smart electric smart program and adapt it for uh, residential use. So convert it to be compatible with uh, Outback inverter, or uh, SMA inverter. And uh, and so that was really the beginning of, of that effort. And, and we did that uh, very quietly. Um, but one thing that I found is if you, if you shone just a little light uh, in inside of the company, there were people that were sort of naturally attracted to that kind of a light. Hmm. Um, even at a company that like Tesla, which is which even then, so when I joined, we were a couple of hundred people, maybe 300 people, something like that. Uh, but it was growing very, very quickly. And even in that kind of an environment where it still itself is a startup, there are always people who want to work on the next startup thing. And um, I found that to be true, not just at Tesla, but, at places like Daimler or Toyota and you sort of people find their way the, the, there's a lot of self-selection that happens throughout companies all the time. And, and so this sort of scrappy skunk works on the side project, we didn't actually have too hard of a time getting people to spend their extra time working on it because they wanted to. And that was the kind of people that is the kind of people that's, that's at Tesla today in general. Um, and so we did it, we did do it very quietly, but, uh, but we did it very successfully and, and, uh, had some great people working on it.
0: What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind. From utilities in hawaii to corporations in virginia and at every stage of development in the u.s alone aes's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar wind energy storage and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals aes is setting a new standard for the future of energy Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero-carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, D.L.A. Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. D.L.A. Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. You were at Tesla for seven years. Uh, I know
1: that you have three kids, the third of whom was born uh, while you were at Tesla. Tell me about the birth of your third.
2: Yeah, he, that came at a tough, t- tough time. Uh, he, so we launched Tesla Energy in spring of 2015, and he was born six weeks prior to that. Um, so uh, I was smack dab in probably the the hardest stretch of my time at the company, uh, trying to get that effort launched. And you know that was the culmination of six years of work for me at that point. Uh, and uh, we had the big launch event, um, but my wife gave birth in the in the hospital. And, I went back to work the next day. Uh, took took no paternity in that case, um, which it, I, I I in some ways is a regret, uh, but in in other ways, uh, I was working on the thing that I had wanted to do for a very long time, and uh, and it just you you don't you can't time these things always, and and I think one of the lessons there for me is that. Uh, kids are, they never come at a convenient time, but you should always want them. <laughs> and, uh, and I was, I, I mean, obviously I love him. He's, he's a fan, all my children are fantastic. Uh, um, but, uh, but yeah, that was a hard stretch and it was, uh, I, I think I, I think I figured out just where my limit is as far as work and sleep and <laughs> trying to balance it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So you decided to leave Tesla in 2016, not knowing what you would do next. I know you looked at ag and water, but kept returning to storage. And with the encouragement of your friend, Dave Danielson and also Elon Gur at Activate in 2017, at 40 years old, you decided to start Verse Energy. And then six months after starting Verse Energy, you merged with another company called Baseload Power out of MIT, um, which could have been a competitor. They had already raised two million dollars in seed funding from the engine that became your seed round post merger. So first, why the merger?
2: Yeah, uh, leaving Tesla, it was just time to leave. Uh, I needed a break, uh, sort of as as I had mentioned. Uh, and increasingly, it was clear to me, um, although I didn't know that this would play into what I would do next it was increasingly clear that lithium-ion is not the panacea that I think many of us in the industry sort of had originally assumed it was. Um, and so when I left, I had just had more of a time to think about that and had time to uh, revisit, so back to my vocational discernment periods, um, wh- how, how do you figure out what to do next? And I really tried to do something other than storage. I, truly, I gave it a good shot. Uh, but it turns out having thought about batteries for as long as I have, it, it's kind of hard for me to just put down and I, I kept returning to that. And, uh, and the, the discernment process tells you that if your brain naturally keeps returning to something, that's probably a good indication that that's something you should spend a lot of time on. Um, you know, what, what, do you, what do you read it truly in your spare time? What, what, how, when your mind wanders, where does it go, right? Just pretty simple things. Uh, and so for me, very clearly, it, just, it was storage. I, I can't not think about it apparently at this point. Um, and so I, I, really started to lean into that and I, and, and it was really with a thought experiment, um, which was, uh, you know, as we started to see, uh, seasonal curtailment, for example, in the state of California, the, the California ISO has, the, now they've got five years of data at the time and there was only two years of data and, and it was non-existent prior to two years ago. And, but you could look at it kind of similar to what I did with the price curves of, wind or solar, I, I'd looked at that curtailment curve and the light bulb went off and said, mm-hmm. um, surely this is gonna be nonlinear from here on out. And, uh, and so what kind of battery, not only solves the curtailment problem, because maybe that's not really the fundamental problem, but what kind of battery allows you to fully replace, let's just say, natural gas? Um, and and I, I wanted to do that as a thought experiment because in many ways, I just wanted to have that question answered. And I truly thought that the answer would be that, that the best possible paper study you could do of the best possible thing would still indicate that we're off by an order of magnitude, or maybe a factor of five, I, I don't know, something. But just it would be too expensive. In which case, fantastic, now I can close the storage book and go work on <laughs> something else, right? Hydrogen, or fusion, or whatever crazy idea. Um, but that's not what I found. I found that once you understood the problem correctly and you characterized it in the right way, nobody had actually asked the questions that were really needed to understand what kind of battery falls out of that thought process, uh, somewhat to my own surprise. Um, so I, I started to go down that path. I um, was, uh, for a stretch there, about six months, uh, the entrepreneur residence, whatever that meant, uh, at Cyclotron Road, as Activate was called then. And um, with Elon Gur uh, and a lot of his encouragement and sort of the ecosystem there, sort of ran the idea through the traps and we sort of got to the end point there. And he looked at me and being a good friend, he said, dude, I think you got to start that business. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it was, it, it, Elon was fantastic uh, helping me think through that. Uh, so was Dave, uh, so was Cody Friesen, another good friend of mine. Um, my, a, a large cohort of people helped support me through that phase um and uh and it's not it's not a step that came naturally I, I was never the uh sort of classic cut cut from typical cloth entrepreneurial uh kind of person um i i am much more methodical and uh, take a long time to really lean into things but when i got to that point it it became pretty obvious that, that that was worth doing um that it was a problem worth solving uh that there was an opportunity that was worth going after it's a trillion dollar opportunity, literally. And um, and so it made a lot of sense to start that company. Um, and I did it on my own, just because that was the obvious thing to do. Um, but a couple months in, uh, when things were just starting to get going, and I was just thinking about raising money, I got a call from a professor at MIT, a guy named Yet Ming Cheng, and Yet uh, is a luminary in our field. You know, he's, um, he, he was, the technical founder of A123 and subsequently 24M. And um, he's a phenomenal guy. And, and I've known him just through the industry for a number of years. Um, but he called me and said very simply, hey, I heard you're working on long duration storage. So am I, why don't we just do it together? Um, and that's the kind of guy he is. He's just a phenomenal person. And he had already uh, started a company that was looking at uh, longer duration storage, tens of hours duration. And um, had uh, formed that company, based Load Renewables, with uh, Ted Wiley, also uh, battery industry. Um, uh, uh, he'd been been in the industry for a while. Uh, Marco Ferrara and Billy Woodford, um, also uh, all of them, um, having been in the battery industry for a while. So n- none of us was naive about what this would be or how long it would take. But I didn't know them, and it took a couple months of sort of speed dating, if you will, uh, to figure out that that's what we wanted to do. Uh, and in the end, um, we decided to do it. And I think that doing so sent the right signal both to ourselves as well as to the kind of company that we wanted to go build, which was, th- this is such a hard thing and there's so much risk on it that we, w- if there's any ego, it's worth sublimating in all the right ways in service of reducing risk uh, for the venture. And, and we like the idea of having two technical shots on goal. Uh, we like the idea of having the collective experience around the table. Um, and we really like the idea of uh, going about it in the right way, and so uh, so that that sort of became the seed of the culture of the company, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm. As far as fundraising, so you had that $2 million seed funding in 2017, 2018 you raised a $9 million Series A, um, including uh, The Engine, Prelude, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Macquarie, Saudi Aramco, and in August of this year you closed your Series B of $40 million, everyone in the Series A plus Capricorn and NE uh, for a total of $51 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much capital will it take, how much more capital will it take for Form Energy to reach profitability?
2: Well, I have two of my investors in the room here, so maybe I, <laughs> <laughs> a little circumspect. No, we, we talk about it very openly. There, there was uh, obviously no hiding behind the fact that this is going to take a lot of money. Uh, it is a hardware development company, after all. Uh, it, so, to tr- answer the question, let's call it 100 more million dollars is sort of what we expect as a baseline. Uh, the payoff, though, is is quite large, and I and I think the reason why our investors see that number and it doesn't cause them to run for the hills is because we are going about this in such a different way. Uh, We have thought very deeply about the kind of thing that has to succeed and and has to be meaningfully different from everything else that's that's out there on the landscape. We've invested very heavily in the software side of things as well, uh, which we're already making revenues on actually, um, to really quantify uh, to a very precise level exactly what we mean when we say long duration storage. Is that... 20 hours, is that 2,000 hours? How does that fit in? Um, and what are the exact applications? How do you get this kind of new thing that nobody's ever seen before uh, into high value applications of the market? How do you make a difference? Right? Um, so that, so we're, we're going about it in a bit of a different way. And it, and it also means, by the way, not just building in the end, thinking you're gonna build a factory and sell product at margin. Um, that's also not the business model that solves. Um, so I think we've, we've had a chance to rethink with our investors, of course, um, how we go about trying to solve this problem and how to build this kind of company uh, so that we don't go down any of the pitfalls that have uh, shown up for a lot of other attempts in this space. There, there's a lot of learnings out there, which is one of the beautiful things about being a part of a founding team like this. We can all pull off of relevant experiences um, and, uh, and bring um, some very leavened perspective to the table on it. Mm-hmm.
1: When you say long duration storage, you're talking about hundreds of hours and industry standard for lithium ion batteries now is about four. So for people who tell you that what, or think, maybe they don't say it to your face, if they think what you're doing is impossible, mm-hmm. what would you say to them?
2: Well, they, they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> 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 uh, I, I mean, it, it, things feel impossible until somebody does it, right? And, and I think that uh, you know, one analogy that, I, that comes in handy, I find, when talking about batteries and the kinds of batteries that we need. Um, I'm a runner, so I, I think, about, uh, think about running. Um, you know, think about sort of very high-performance runners. And uh, you, you very rarely see people run meaningfully different distances at very high levels. And so you would, you would never take a sprinter and expect that they would compete at the highest level in a marathon. Uh, or vice versa. Right? In other words, specialization across distances matters a lot. Uh, they're they're just very different kinds of kinds of athletes in the end. And the, it turns out to achieve the goals that we have, or or another state another way, to go after the biggest opportunities that are out there for energy storage, you need to run a marathon. You don't need to run a two hundred meter, four hundred meter, eight hundred meter sprint. Mm. We've got great batteries that do 15 minutes to four hours, maybe even into the 10 hours. But as you look at the evolution of the grid and you look at the penetration of renewables and what it says about what kind of battery you're going to need, or again, thought of a different way, what kind of battery you would want as an entrepreneur to be able to bring to the market, to go after the biggest possible opportunity, it implies something that's dramatically different. And you know, again, to not lean too hard on the running analogy, but until very recently, it was thought that humans could not run ultra marathons, for mm. example, um, that was impossible, right? Or, or to uh, be gendered about it, it was thought that women specifically could not possibly run a hundred mile race, right? Just impossible. Well, guess what? It's totally possible, and you just had to have the brave souls that decided to prove that that it was possible. And, um, and you have to know you have to know what to do, and you have to know how to go about it, and you have got to pick the right material set and the right abundance features and everything else. Mm. Uh, but, but I think we've done that, mm. and. Uh, and I, I know that we have an entitlement to play in that space that we're targeting, which is, uh, which is 10 or 100 times cheaper than anything else that's out there.
1: Mm-hmm. From a product and team standpoint, so on the product side, I know the chemistry that YET was working on pre-merger was sulfur-based. The one that you ID'd is not something that you're talking about. Uh, On the business model side, you've already talked about utilities that are already paying you for the optimization tool that you had to build to justify the value of what you're attempting to put in front of utilities. Um, And so the question is for you as a non, you know, traditionally non-technical as far as what you studied, um, how have you thought about building your team to complement both the hardware side of the business, but also this new software side that you're already finding value in in the form of revenue that you're getting? Um, yeah, tell me about that.
2: Yeah, um, so to be clear, I was the ranking theologian for my entire time at Tesla. Was, <laughs> I, did, I did have to pull rank a couple times, uh, and that remains a case of Form. Um, as far as the kind of team that we're putting together, the reason why we invested so heavily in the software side of things up front, and, and this is largely uh, through uh, one of Form's co-founders, Marco Ferrara, who comes out of the software side of things for energy storage. We knew, and just from experience, you, you cannot walk into a room full of of electricity world stakeholders, be they regulators or legislators or utility executives, describe something they've never thought of, have never seen, have no experience with, and then ask them to value it for you. Right? That's a very short, boring, bad conversation. So we knew that we had to be able to walk in there with a, with a value already ascribed and a deep understanding for the way that the markets actually work uh, with the, the, the full knowledge um, ourselves uh, that, this, that this could clear. And so uh, that, that's what we started to invest in. It, it turns out this is a much deeper area than even we had thought, um, and we have subsequently invested even more in in building out that capability because there is demand there uh, for the kind of insights um, that that come out of the the really deep uh, analytics that that we're able to bring to the table for all these conversations.
1: So you've been at it two years now since you started. What was Verse now Form Energy? Yep. Throughout your time so far, granted that you're still really early in the process, especially for something like long duration storage, what lesson has taken you the longest to learn?
2: Well, I'm still learning to be CEO, to be perfectly candid. Uh, I, not only first time founder, but first time CEO. And so really figuring out what that means on a, on a day-to-day basis, and over the integrated time scale as well. Uh, hopefully I get better at it every day, but there, there's a lot of things I, that I need to learn. And, uh, and, I, and really the only reason why I, I think I've had any, whatever success I've had, it's really because of the team uh, that I'm a part of, uh, not because I'm commanding, controlling everything that's happening in the company. Um, and so w- one thing I certainly learned at Tesla was you, you've gotta let people do their job. Uh, you gotta hire the best possible people. And I don't mean like kind of good people. I mean the absolute best possible people that are available to be hired in the world. Those are the people you have to hire. Uh, And uh, I think we've done that um, well in the first phase of the company. And I'm surrounded by co-founders who are also in that same category. And so, so, but that doesn't mean that I don't have to learn things. I don't make mistakes and, and that it's not important to continue to try and get better every day.
1: As far as your identity, you identify as Chicano, what does that mean to you? And how has your experience as somebody who, without knowing your name, may perceive you as white, but then if they do know your name, you know, I assume perceive you as Latino, in an industry that is overly represented by people who are both white and male?
2: Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm on the spectrum of the, you could broadly call the Latino experience within the United States. Uh, n- there is no one place where everybody has to be, of course, uh, so I, I represent sort of my part of the spectrum, which is as a child of two different you know, people from two different cultures. it doesn't feel strange to me. <laughs> it feels perfectly normal i don't have trouble tying my shoes or anything like that <laughs> uh, but it but the way that I think about it, and I'm sort of coming at it from an entrepreneurial perspective here I, the, the thing that uh, that makes me uh, more than wistful is just the fact that we're missing out on so much talent, frankly. Uh, you know, I grew up with super smart kids who just never made it for whatever reason. Uh, but they're out there, and, and we, I think collectively as a society, we, we have to do a much better job figuring out how to tap into that talent. You know, would it, would it be nice to have, you know... <laughs> Some really good tortillas more frequently at <laughs> corporate events? Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but, but that's not the kind of thing that's going to you know, make or break uh, our, our collective industry or, or our society. Uh, but, but it would certainly be nice to just be able to bring more of the broader spectrum in. And, and, and I, it's also coming from a technology-focused perspective. I think it, once you're in the policy sphere or you're in the environmental justice sphere, then certainly you, you see more faces and communities represented. Um, uh, so really, I, I'm talking about here on, really on the technical side of things. Um, so, uh, so it's it's just unfortunate that that structurally it's it's hard to bring that whole community in. Um, but uh, but it doesn't cause me daily cognitive dissonance.
1: Mm. Have you, as the person creating the leadership and the team at Form, had the opportunity to create a team that reflects your diversity values?
2: Well, we're trying. Um, we are about 40 people now, about two thirds male, one third female, which for our industry is pretty good. Um, but we're getting better. Uh, it's it's hard, though. Uh, I'll say we, we have a very forward leaning posture on on hiring people that come from non typical backgrounds, and I I mean that in different ways. You could say in some ways we are over affiliated with MIT. We have a very high percentage of people who went to MIT, and and that's Phenomenal because the quality of the talent is there, but it doesn't mean that the diversity of mindset is there necessarily. And one thing that we need to be to succeed is creative. And, um, and that means that we have to have divergent viewpoints um, and divergent approaches that allow us to solve our way out of, out of hard problems. And that's hard to do when everybody has the exact same training and the exact same set of experiences that, that they're all kind of referencing. And so we look for diversity in a lot of different ways, of course um and we try very hard uh and we uh canvas all the areas that we can possibly think of to proactively find talent and put them in the pipeline um but but as certainly as you go further into later career professionals uh, it really is stark how quickly that the depth of the pipeline falls off
1: mm-hmm. You are a parent of three kids, as we talked about. You're a partner to your wife and CEO form. What has been? What has it been like to be all three at the same time?
2: Ooh, uh, it's been challenging. My my wife is probably better suited to and actually give you the real answer. You want me to call her in? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, yeah, it it's been a balance. I one phenomenal thing about uh, being a part of a founding team is that. It feels much more integrated with my life than my time at Tesla, for example, mm. uh, which was, in many ways, isolating. Uh, you know, the, the, the company is insatiable uh, it, and will always ask for more, uh, especially at a, at a place like Tesla run by a guy like Elon. Um, and so that was always very hard to integrate any sense of family life into that effort, whereas being a part of a founding team of the company, my, my kids know my co-founders. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, they, they get along famously, um, the co, my whole team has met my parents. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it feels like a much more integrated experience and it doesn't mean that it's not hard, nonetheless, switching between the contexts all the time. Um, but it, it but it, for me personally, it's a lot less isolating. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a family, we've been in Boston the last two months or sorry, last two years, the summers of the last two years. And, and that's wonderful, uh, partially because San Francisco is so cold in, in <laughs> August. But, um, but it's, it's been a, a challenge, of course, but it's also the b- being CEO and starting a company and having a family and trying to be good at all three of those things um, ha- has been uh, challenging, but also giving some great opportunities to figure out ways to integrate those things that I didn't know were possible when, for example, I was at Tesla. Mm-hmm.
1: Where is form energy today, and where will you be in five years?
2: So today, we are uh, just coming out of what I would call the hard science phase of things. Um, when we started the company, we, we truly didn't know if the universe would work the way that we hoped that it was going to work. And, and I think today, we feel pretty good about how the universe works uh, in the way that we want to. And uh, so that, that phase is, is now being put to a different use, which is continued improvement, of course. But we feel we're standing on very stable ground scientifically. And now the, the next phase of the company really is to go make a product um, in many ways. And so that, that's why we raised the Series B. Uh, our first electrical engineer started this week. I know that may sound strange for a battery company, but uh, we have a lot of electrochemists and material scientists um, who really work inside the cell. And now that the cell has some stability in terms of its um, architecture and, uh, and, and format, we can start to think about what multiple cells uh, look like together and of course the entire system. Um, so that's where we are right now. Uh, in five years, uh, the expectation is that we will, we will be scaling up our our product in the market and that projects will be getting developed using this this battery, um, this, this bi-directional power plant, um, that we will be actively retiring uh, thermal assets in favor of uh, renewable assets, uh, but it will really be at the beginning of that curve. This is a, an industry that does not turn, turn on a dime. Um, so we are, that's one of the benefits of the software work is that we can engage our future commercial partners in meaningful ways right now, uh, contractual ways right now, um, and identify the, the most linear path to get into the market at scale.
1: Before we close with our high voltage round, last question for this piece, what does the future of energy and storage look like?
2: The future will continue to be pretty diverse um, the the grid will always in general prefer a diversity of assets uh, we don't we don't want to overly rely on one thing and so for energy storage, I fully expect that to be uh, certainly lithium ion there there's no way lithium ion goes away in any sense uh, it will provide a very continue to provide a very valuable function on the grid uh, but I do think that in addition to what lithium ion provides a, a longer f- duration format battery will be available on the grid and and part of the way that we know that is um, pumped hydro whenever you can build it very 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 big it gets built uh, it's getting it, it, it is not trivial to do in this day and age of course um, and the durations aren't always available for what you might want uh, but the the example is there and and the fit and function of that asset into the market is is certainly proven and uh, so in many ways we we just need the technology to be to be ready and developed. Uh, so I think in the end, we'll have a, a diversity of kinds of assets on the grid, continually. Uh, and I, I think uh, Forum Energy will, will play a key part in that, uh, but we will not be the only ones by any stretch of the imagination. Great.
1: Our high voltage round starts with a question that I know I've been wanting to know from you from a very long time, I think everyone in the audience does, which is, if you were an animal, what animal would you be, and why?
2: <laughs> oh, uh, I would be, I'd be a dog and and why i I don't have a breed of a dog probably a a mutt of some kind uh dogs dogs have a specific need to be in relation i think in a way that appeals to me Um, and especially dogs and humans i uh, not to go back too far into the theology but the you know humans want to be in relation and and I, i it's a you know what, why the environment? What you know? Even going back further, why do I work on the environment? For me, it's a uh, it's a human issue, really. Um, if we don't take care of the humans, the humans definitely won't take care of the earth, and uh, those things really feed back onto each other. And I think dogs uh, are in relations with humans in unique ways.
1: What inspires you? Uh,
2: the the beauty of the earth
1: if you had to start a new career tomorrow, let's say not in storage, (laughs) what would it be?
2: Well, it definitely wouldn't be in the priesthood. Uh, (laughs) It it would probably be in agriculture somehow.
1: Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My parents. When have you failed?
2: Lots of times, (laughs) in many ways. Uh, It's a very broad question. Professionally, uh, the first company that AI Power Technologies was a was a hard thing, and uh, I think it's it's maybe a cavalier, especially in Silicon Valley, to to wear failure as a badge of honor. But uh, that was painful for me, and it was not the way that that you know, some of that played out. I'm not uh, I could have done so many things better, frankly, and it's still you know I can still feel exactly how bad that was uh, on occasion. And, uh, and it's a, frankly, it's a memory and it's a feeling that as an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. I, I try and access to make sure that I don't ever have to feel that way again. Um, so so I, I, I'm not proud per se of that failure. It was hard, um, but I do try and use it in the right ways. And, and I fail as a parent daily, <laughs> <laughs> all the time.
1: What's the best investment you've ever made?
2: Uh, best investment. Um, it's probably in the relationships with my friends.
1: What's something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
2: Uh, that lithium ion will solve all the problems <laughs> on the grid.
1: <laughs> if Form were to fail, why would it fail?
2: Well, there are still a thousand reasons why the company might fail. I don't think though that it would fail because we've picked the wrong pathway. I think we've made the right decision. You you have to, you know, in my mind, it's important to not overly index on, again, my investors might not not, not like hearing this, over index on the outcome. We've set up the company in a way that it's set up, that that, that gives us the greatest chance of success. And in some ways that's as much as we can control. Now we have to continue to invest in our our people and uh, and and make sure we have enough capital, uh, but the strategy is very very clear. Right now we do have enough capital, and we need to make sure that the message is out there and we develop the market. Um, but it, but there are any number of things nonetheless that could trip us up as a company. We're still very early in the in the phase. Um, so the but the one thing I worry about most is that we do not hire the best possible people in the world, and so. It, it really, the standard of excellence that we have at Form is very, very high, and we intentionally try and find those people and convince them to join the company, and I think that we're doing a pretty good job of that, but I, that's the thing I'm most paranoid about, uh, because I do think that that is where we most likely would fail, is if we don't do that. The, the margin for success and failure around talent is very, very thin, and the kinds of problems that we're solving require the best... People in the world, and I. This is another learning from Tesla. T- Tesla has soldiered through so many challenging times um, because of the strength of the vision of the company and the strength of the engineering in its troops. And and Drew Baglino, who's the CTO there, and a good friend and, and team. And before him, JB, um, the the team that they've put together is the best engineering team in the world, hands down. And I've I've seen it up close and firsthand. And I know what it takes um, to make sure that that's the standard that you that you hold.
1: What is your I'm sorry. When are you your best self? Uh,
2: Probably right after a run.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What is your worst trait?
2: Ooh, uh, probably that I'm too selfish in some way.
1: If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be?
2: I get to wave a wand. (laughs) Uh, I would. uh, I would make sure everybody felt loved.
1: If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be?
2: Mm, My parents, both of them.
1: What is the hardest kind of help to ask for?
2: Hmm. Uh, probably on parenting
1: things hmm. yeah. finish these sentences for me companies fail because
2: uh, they don't have a vision that everybody knows how it fits for them
1: if you really knew me you would know
2: <laughs> you would know Uh, what what it feels like when the sun comes up over the lettuce fields in Salinas on a cool summer morning.
1: Success is?
2: Probably not what we think it is. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) It's more than one thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I think success. I mean, at this point in my life, I realized that I, I could have all the business success in the world, and if I don't have a good family life, I would not feel successful. And, and vice versa. So for me, success is balance in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, it's m- more than just the one thing that we think of.
1: If I could have done one thing differently, I would have.
2: Started a company sooner.
1: <laughs> I'm most proud of
2: my ability to commit to something.
1: Last question to build a successful startup, what it takes is
2: excellent, talented people.
1: Before we close with a round of applause, I'm gonna take a video of you clapping to post on social media. So I know you would clap really enthusiastically, even if this wasn't going on social media, but because it is, if on the count of three, you could give a huge round of applause for Mateo Jaramillo. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.f-u-n-d. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.